Good evening. My name is Charlotte Armagh, and I'm Head of Alumni Relations here at the LSE. It is my great pleasure to welcome you all to this inaugural Director's Alumni Lecture by LSE Director Professor Craig Calhoun. The lecture will be shared by Rishi Madlani, BSc Economics 2005. Rishi was General Secretary of the LSE Students' Union from 2005 to 2006 when he was a student governor and is currently a member of the Court of Governors and also chairs the LSE Banking and Finance Alumni Group. So without further ado, I will hand you over to Rishi and thank you all so much for coming. Enjoy your evening. Good evening um, and welcome and thank you for sparing time in a, a, less, a less cold January to uh, come back to our old haunt of the LSE. When we, as I look around in front of me today and as you look around you, we have a huge diversity of, of attendees from across the alumni group. The uh, earliest I have on my list here was back from the 1950s and the, uh, and, the early, and the latest is from 2012. And it's great to see such a diverse body of alumni here just still showing a keen interest to hear from Craig today on the state of the school. Um, so, uh, so this is Craig's first appearance in front of uh, a, a, a such a broad alumni group, so I hope we're going to give him a traditional LSE tough time. Um, <laughs> by way of introduction, he's a, a world-renowned science, social scientist whose work connects sociology, culture, communications, politics, philosophy and economics. I don't know when he gets time to rest. Um, it's, <laughs> it's his, uh, he joined us on the 1st of September 2012, though I know he was working very hard behind the scenes to make sure we had as smooth a transition as possible. Um, uh, so this is effectively his four-month appraisal. So when we come to the Q&A, you're allowed to ask lots of tight questions, difficult questions, and we'll have a, a vote whether we keep them afterwards. Uh, <laughs> There have been lots of, cha- lots of changes in the school, and he's come in with a, a breath of fresh air. Um, he's a, he was a university professor at, at uh, New York University and, the Institu- and uh, director of the Institute of Public Knowledge and president of the Social um, Sciences Research Council. He also did a, he's, he's not, he does have a, a, a lot strong UK connection. He, uh, he did a DPhil in history of social sciences, uh, sorry, social anthropology at a lesser known university in Oxfordshire and a, uh, and a master's in, uh, in, in uh, social anthropology at Manchester. Um, He's shown his commitment to combining London and New York with uh, co-founding with Richard Sennett the Nylon Programme, which combined research programmes between New York University and, and London and, and our institute itself, uh, which proves the special relationship is still strong and growing stronger in research at least. Um, he's the author of several books. Um, I won't sell them all for you, but you can look, up, you can look them up all online and, uh, and hopefully buy some of them. So uh, without further ado, um, Craig's going to speak for about... 45 minutes to an hour, and then allow for plenty of time for Q&A. So please think of lots of questions, and I know you, we have a lot of stakeholders who care about the future of the school. So with no further ado, over to Craig. Richard? Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Well, my, my thanks to Rishi, and my thanks to the Alumni Association, my thanks to all of you. It's wonderful to be at the LSE, and it's wonderful to get a chance to talk with the alumni. I want to stress at the outset that from my point of view, this is still your university. Claim it. Care about it. Challenge us on what we're doing, what we ought to be doing, and raise the necessary questions. Because nobody does the right thing or the necessary thing simply by themselves and without any larger context of of debate, of discussion, of ideas, and We need you 
but we need you in a whole range of ways. I know that you've joined the Alumni Association. I know you've been supporters in various ways. But the school needs its lineage. And part of what I'm going to talk about is that. Going back to the founders, what the school stands for and means, and continuing through what we're doing now and continuing to what you do. The school isn't just those people who are here for any particular three-year period or one-year period, or if it's a PhD study, five or six or seven-year period. It's the whole community and what the LSE stands for. This is a school with very rich traditions, with wonderful alumni of all sorts. I'm personally disappointed that Mick Jagger didn't make it tonight, but I'm very pleased that all of you made it. And um, it is a school that goes beyond simply achieving academic excellence or simply offering students career opportunities. We do both of these things. This is an extraordinary research institution which is at the forefront of work in a variety of disciplines and in interdisciplinary areas from issues of finance and financial regulation to climate change to urbanization. Right. So let's take it as red. It's really good academically. But that's not the whole of what makes it the LSE. It's also a school that opens up extraordinary career opportunities for its students. And I hope that you have benefited from these career opportunities and in a range of different kinds of fields, from the civil service to social welfare administration to the city of London and working in global finance to other kinds of corporate work and the highest levels of policy. The school's graduates go on to remarkable careers and we make that possible. And that's critical and crucial. But the animating spirit of the school is more than that. It is about making a difference in the world. The LSE makes a difference in the world and seeks to make a difference in the world. It does that through research, in part, and through teaching to a very large extent. But we are oriented to that idea. And this goes back to the very founding of the school, which was not to simply be one more university, ranked higher or lower in a list of universities, but to make a difference in the world, and specifically, to make the world better. Now, I think we do this, but I think it's a goal that we want to keep setting ourselves and challenging ourselves with. We do make a difference, we do make the world better, and we could do more. And our goal isn't satisfied by saying, oh, in the last ref, we were ranked third and second or fourth or whatever in England. That's not our goal. Right? Nor is it simply a goal in some other league table. Right? The goal for the LSE, the purpose of the LSE, is to make the world better, which calls on us to teach and to do research and to engage the public in distinctive ways, not generic ways, not just a little better than they do it here or more or less the same as they do it there, but to find the ways that we think are distinctively important and valued. Now, I'm pleased to report to you in this, what's billed as a state of the school address, I'm pleased to report to you that the state of the school is very good. We're in good shape financially. We have wonderful students. We have terrific research programs. I'll tell you a little bit more about good things happening. But very good is not our aspiration. Right? 
Our aspiration is not simply to achieve very good and then rest on our laurels, to be content with our accomplishments, to celebrate being very good. Right? Our aspiration is to have a major impact, to have major impacts, plural, in a variety of different areas, making the world better, as I suggested, innovating and leading in scientific work. We don't want just to be doing good work published in good journals. We want to be pushing the boundaries of the envelope, challenging the orthodoxies of fields, innovating, and doing all of that with an eye to the real world. One of the great things about the LSE is that it is harnessing very distinguished, extraordinarily distinguished, high-quality, rigorous academic work in order to address issues in the real world a lot of the time. Yes, we look inside disciplines and we try to improve work inside each of our disciplines, but overwhelmingly, our work is oriented to the world, and it takes up a variety of issues in the world. Richard Laird is here in the front row, who helped found the Center for Economic Performance, building out of earlier programs, and exemplifying this. Right? Not a center for the internal study of economics as an end in and of itself, but a center for putting economic knowledge to, world, to work studying, understanding, and improving performance of a variety of different social institutions in a variety of different areas of life. And this is exemplary of what we do at the LSE, but it's also exemplary of why we want to push ourselves further. And I'll say just a little bit more than that, but I want to stress this at the beginning. We want nothing less than to be remarkable. And we want it not just so we're proud, I do want you all to be proud of the LSE, but we want it so LSE knowledge is helping to shape the discussions among policymakers, the general public, business corporations, people who are working in a variety of different sectors of public service delivery, for-profit entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurs in London and around the world. So the agenda for the LSE is a very, very ambitious agenda, and that's why we know we fall short sometimes, because we have extraordinarily high goals, and we are motivated to keep doing more, to keep dealing with these problems. And the world has plenty of big issues to deal with, but also opportunities to seize. It's not all problems. It's also chances to do things that really matter. Now, the LSE is doing very well, I said before. I, I stress financially, admission of students, hiring good faculty, and I'm going to tell you more particulars, right? It's doing well, and it's doing it well, doing well in a very challenging context. And one reason that we don't rest on our laurels, that we don't just say, great, all right, let's keep doing everything the same, is that our context is changing so dramatically that it is reshaping the work we do, and the conditions in which we do it. Declining government funding is a part of this story. So the government in the UK does not finance universities as it did a generation or two ago. This is no surprise to anybody here. But it changes what's possible for the LSE and how we work. There's no decline in government regulation, I'm sorry to say, accompanying the decline in funding. We literally spend millions of pounds a year on compliance, reporting, and dealing with regulatory agencies. 
despite the declining government support for the LSE. So that's a change in our context and the context of all the other universities in Britain and the place of the higher education sector, which we may want to talk more about, not just the future of the LSE, but the future of higher education in Britain. But the change in the context isn't just declining government funding. It's a change in the proportion of Britons who go to university. Right? As recently, well, not all that recently, I'm getting old, as recently as when I was at Oxford in the 1970s, it was still about 10.5% of the UK public that went to higher education. Right? Since then, we shot past 40 and kept growing. Right? This is now not a narrow elite definition. To have gone to university does not make you a member of, a narrow, of an exclusive club. Half the population at the age rate goes to university. That's changed the character. It's changed the cost of higher education in society. It's changed what higher education means. It's shifted the internal competition of the universities. And it's challenged the larger enterprise in a lot of ways to have a much bigger higher education sector serving many more people, but in different ways. And in addition to simply growing, it's been reorganized with the post-1992 universities Right, the transformation of institutions that were previously differentiated in their function, their remit, into universities in a more general way. And with other shifts in the way in which research is organized and funded, it's also changed, our context has changed, by increased international competition. The LSE was founded in 1895, right? It's always had some international competition but it was founded with a pretty clear reference group to other UK universities. In order to be founded, it hired faculty members away from Oxford and a handful of other schools, and it created this remarkable institution. But for us to continue to be at the vanguard of the production of new knowledge, teaching students the best of the knowledge in their fields, working with partners at high levels, we became global. We became global initially in the context of the British Empire, remained global in the critique of the British Empire, in movement beyond empire into new kinds of international relations during recent decades, right? and became the most extraordinarily global university perhaps in the world. Right? But this is a big change. It's partly something we celebrate with all of the international students coming to the LSE and with the global content of our courses, but it also means that our competitors are not just Oxford and Cambridge. They are Harvard and Stanford. They are the National University of Singapore and Beijing University. These are our competitors and sometimes our partners. We work with them, but we acknowledge considerable differences, including financial differences. Harvard has a $35 billion endowment which puts it in a very different position when we recruit. We're in the midst of trying to bring back to the LSE a wonderful economist who taught at the LSE before and has moved to Princeton because we want our students to have the benefit of the most extraordinary economist we have. But Princeton right, has a $16 billion endowment and it's small. It's not even bigger than we are like Harvard. Right? So we're in competition financially, for recruiting faculty, we're in competition for recruiting students. 
the number of English students going for undergraduate study abroad goes up every year. The LSE pioneered a global proliferation of master's courses, bringing students from all over the world to the LSE. But these kinds of global courses are now taught in Australia and in China and in Abu Dhabi and in the States and in Canada and in a variety of other places. So we're not the only game in town for globally oriented, real world, high quality education that helps prepare students for careers in our global and complicated society. We also see our environment changing and possibly changing more in the next few years because of a variety of disruptive and potentially transformative new technologies. Most of you have probably heard discussions about MOOCs and wondered what this was and figured it out. Right? But the use of computers and instruction, the use of telecommunications and instruction, something that's been being tested and tried and going on for a long time. Television with the open university and distance learning right, has taken a new turn on a very large scale. MOOC stands for Massive Open Online Courses and started with a few of these being offered like a Stanford Calculus course, which was offered in the university in a way that used new technology to help students learn how to solve problems, sort of almost game-like sort of approach to teaching calculus to university students. And also used the computer to enable students to get advice remotely from the equivalent of a teaching assistant, or sometimes the professor. The professor took it online to more than 100,000 students in its first online offering, which changes the game. And there are now a series of different projects for trying to provide platforms and use these technologies that sign up 100,000, 150,000 students at a time with one professor in a course that use other kinds of innovation like having the group of students online discuss problems and issues, writing, text, rather than orally, right? that have bits of filmed lecture, but also use lots of other sorts of resources from libraries and archives and research, including research that has just been done, not waiting for a textbook to be published that will have it three years later. Right? So there's something very exciting about this. Also something sort of scary and something possibly not as good. Think of your LSE experiences right? and imagine them without being at the LSE. Would it be the same? If you didn't get to look at the professor, right? if you didn't get to discuss the work you were doing with the professor in the seminar, and even more, if you didn't have each other. Because wasn't part of what was at the center of that LSE experience the other students, including that annoying one you always argued with and then went out for a drink with, that guy, right? That guy was important to your education. And I think that that's part of the LSE experience. But that doesn't mean that we can just say, right, we were doing it perfectly in the 50s or 60s or 70s or last week, and therefore we can ignore all this new technology because we can't. And in fact, we weren't doing it perfectly. 
because sometimes that wasn't Karl Popper just delivering a fantastically brilliant lecture. That was a professor who was a mediocre lecturer. He was sort of ordinary. You kind of lost the track of the lecture halfway through. Your notes did not enable you to score a first on your exams. Right? It wasn't perfect. Some of it was much too passive, sitting and listening. Not enough of it was actively involved in the discussions, actively involved in trying out your ideas, actively involved in making things happen. Some of it was. And that's part of what was great about the LSE. And more of it needs to be now. We need to work out how to shift towards more engagement of students in projects, more engagement of students in active learning in relation to the course content, in relation to each other, team projects. We do this, and we're going to do more. Right? And it may be that the new technologies help us to shift some of the way in which students get basic knowledge out of passive listening and build in more time for active engagements in learning. Now, this isn't just affecting universities. At the moment, we have this huge explosion of these massive, open, online courses, but it affects other fields as well with new technology, and others have had disruptive experiences in a variety of industries. Look what's happening to media and journalism today as they are changed by the internet and the business model is transformed, and we ask ourselves, is the university going the same way? Right. I was talking with the um, editor of The Guardian not long ago, Alan Russ Bridger, about this, who was saying, well, you know, they have a loss regularly. They have a trust which sustains the paper. It has a finite single-digit number of years before it runs out in the current business model. It's The Guardian. That's a successful paper. It's a paper lots of people in this room read. I read every morning. Right? That's not some small fly-by-night organization, but it's being transformed and figuring out how to realize a profit in the online world is challenging for them. And it's not because they lost all their readers. It's because the whole context and model changed. Now, I want to go on about all of that, but massive online open courses. Right? Open is a key word in these MOOCs. They don't charge. Right? They're free. That changes something. Now, at the moment, you can't get a degree this way. And I'm not sure you'll ever be able to get the elite, distinguished kinds of degrees the LSE offers, or for that matter, Cambridge or Oxford offer, this way. But it changes the whole field of higher education. And it challenges us to figure out how to be doing the work that we need to do. Some of the work we need to do is about things the students need to do here at the LSE with each other not online, but then we'd better be working out what those things are. Is it sitting passively in the lecturer? Or is it working in a group on a project? Let me just continue this for a moment. We have an entrepreneurs club at the LSE. We haven't thought very much about entrepreneurs historically at the LSE. We've produced a number. What we've thought about is people who would go to work in finance for large corporations, people who would go to work for the government in large organizations, people who would be senior leaders because the LSE students didn't come here to learn how to be followers. They came here to learn how to be leaders. But we haven't really been fully a part of a transformation in the expectations and aspirations of our students, many of whom want to make a new organization. 
They want to invent a company, invent a social movement, activist organization, invent an NGO that will help people with one or another kind of issue. They want to make things happen in a certain way, not just get a good job. So we have an entrepreneur organization. You might say, that's terrific. It's good you have this club with 50 students who are interested in this. I don't know. No. It's over 1,000 LSE students in the entrepreneurs club. More than 10% of all the students at the LSE across all fields and all levels, right? more than 20% of our undergraduates right, are in this club. It's a very important part of how a lot of people now think of making a difference in the world, think of making the world a better place, which is the longstanding LSE goal. They think of starting a new firm, going off to Shoreditch, hooking up with some technology inventors, some people who are applying new ideas, doing design work, right? But also, right, being activists, creating a web-based support system for women who are dealing with breast cancer. It's not always inventing the next apple, but the inventing part, something that is new, something you made that followed up something that you were passionate about is very important to a lot of our students. So we need to think about how we teach and think about the LSE in the context of a changing student body. So yes, it's financing by the government or somebody else, and yes, it's the questions of international competition, right? and it's the technology, but really, in the end, it's the students and what they're trying to get out of coming to university, how they have the distinctive set of opportunities that we give them, right? and how the set of opportunities needs to change to work well for them. Now, to get our bearings in all of this, I want to go back for just a moment to the founding. I think we have a sort of origin myth, as the anthropologists say. Right? We have a story about the LSE we tell, and it's important and instructive. And part of what I would tell in that story of the LSE is how the founders, the Webbs, George Bernard Shaw, the people who made the LSE happen, first off, were entrepreneurs, that is. They didn't start a business. They started a university. They were innovators. They didn't say, what departments do they have at Oxford? Let's have those. Right? They said, Oxford doesn't want to teach economics? We will. Right? And they didn't just say it because they thought, oh, that'd be cool. It'll differentiate us from Oxford. They said it because the basic thing they were on about was the world was changing. London was becoming the first global megacity during this period. There was dramatic social inequality in new ways. This was, in fact, a site right here um, of significant poverty. Right? They said the world needs to cope with these changes better, and it can do that based on knowledge, based on new kinds of knowledge. We need new kinds of knowledge to deal with the new problems, new era, okay? and the LSE can help to deliver that. The LSE can create and advance that knowledge, and eventually it becomes a great research institution. The LSE can share it in ways that go beyond the traditional student body of Oxford or Cambridge that are not based on privilege and social background, but on recruiting a range of different sorts of students who can use that knowledge in various ways. And the LSE has a huge impact on the basis of this model. 
I want to tell that story as our story because I think we're in a new era. There are new issues. There are new academic fields. We don't want to do exactly the same lines of academic work the LSE did 50 or 100 years ago. But we want to do just what the founders did when they said, let's make the new kind of institution that can speak to the issues of today, help the students of today, help them without regard to class background or privilege, right, and have an impact in the world. Okay. So the LSE was made into a very open sort of university. It's no accident that it's not in some pretty cathedral town in a bucolic setting in the countryside, right? that it's in London. And London has shaped it throughout its life, right? shaped in the way it could be open to business, to social movements, the way that it could engage with government, the courts of justice right next door, the way in which it could become global and multicultural. All of the LSE history is shaped by this decision to be in the world, open to the world, right? not walled off, not in retreat from the world, not a sort of monastic place for study, right? but a right in the middle of London place for study and engagement with the world. LSE has probably had an influence beyond its founders' dreams. I think they had high aspirations, and they started something that went way beyond, that could go on beyond the specifics of their dreams. Yes, it supported and helped the trade union movement. And it continues in a variety of ways, its connection with the trade union movement, but to support and help other movements that they didn't even think about at the time of the founding of the LSE. It's changed, attracted students from all over the world, dramatically improved physical estate. I mean, you could have fit the original LSE in the first few rows of this room, in addition to just what a beautiful and high-quality room it is for lectures for this purpose. So we'll go on changing in those things. But there are ways in which we change that the founders probably would not have approved of. The LSE costs a lot more. This project of being open to a range of different students is a project in difficulty. And I don't just mean because of the new fee regime, though that's part of it, the fact that the uh, British students may pay higher fees because the recent government changes. That's just part of a bigger story of the costs. People pay more to come here. It costs more to students, but it costs more overall to run. Just the whole thing costs more. And the money has to come from somewhere. Right? But I want to highlight that this is a problem. Not a problem because we're not going to raise the money, we are, but a problem because of what it means about the mission of the LSE and therefore something we work on. The founders rightly wanted the LSE to be open to people who would put knowledge to use from a variety of different walks of life. That's harder in this cost structure. It's harder in this field of higher education. It's harder in many ways to realize. Now, we do some of it with our global reach. We do some of it with widening participation and outreach efforts in England. But we need to keep asking ourselves, is this a university open to and recruiting the best and the brightest? 
Well, yes, you might say. All of our students are very smart. It's really hard to get into. There are 12 to 14 students applying for every place at the LSE. Applications are up 15% this year, even while they're down at a lot of other British universities. We're getting the best and brightest. Ah, we have to watch out unless we want to say we're getting the best and the brightest whose parents can afford to pay. Because that's really the description of a lot. They really are smart. They're really terrific. They're motivated. They may actually go on to careers that challenge some of the global inequality, but their access to the LSE to a very large extent is based on family capacity to pay. Yes, some are sponsored by their governments or by an employer or by others. That's true. But we're in a situation, along with most of the other leading universities of the world, in which family ability to pay is governing access law. And that's one of the things that the founders objected to about other universities in creating the LSE. So if it's part of our mission to reach out, to get the best and brightest, to get the students from different walks of life who can use the knowledge, how do we do it? Well, maybe those MOOCs, right, those massive online open courses, or some other kind of outreach programs are part of that. And we can use these to open access. Maybe we will be able to raise scholarship money. My number one priorities, I'll say a bit more about philanthropy in the moment, but is that we should be able to offer more scholarships to students. I don't think there's any way out of this world in which the fees are going up. So the fees are at 8,500 pounds for British students. Just today, the academic board voted to make them 9,000 pounds starting in fall 2014, in a year and a half which is what every other Russell Group University charges. Right. So there's one issue about that. The fees for international students are considerably higher, 15,000 and up. Postgraduate fees are higher than undergraduate fees. There's an issue about these. They're not even close to the fees of Hartford, Harvard or Stanford. It's a bargain in some comparisons. So I don't think it's that we made the wrong decision exactly. I think it's that we face a real issue around the fees. There are only a few places that money can come from to run the university. It can come from government. Raise your hand if you think it's likely that the British government will anytime soon double the investment in universities. <laughs> and by raising your hand, you said you believed him. <laughs> he will sing you an apology. Now, um, I, there are people saying, oh, maybe we'll go down to 6,000, that labor will have a different platform, this will happen. I'm telling you, I don't believe it. I don't think this is going to happen. We may keep it capped for a long time and not let it go higher, I don't know. But fundamentally, I don't think government's going to find the money for a big new investment of that kind, and certainly not across the board of all universities with a system the scale of what we have now. There may be new investments in research, there may be new investments in specific programs and innovations, but the idea that we're going to go back to the kind of grant and income system where the government paid a very large proportion of the costs, I think is not realistic. So we have to figure out. So government pays something, right? but um, not everything. Research contracts and grants are important. The LSE has a terrific program of research, one of the leaders in the UK, externally funded research, and certainly in the lead among social scientists. Right? There are large grants in the biomedical sciences and engineering and other areas that are somewhat different. Right? 
we get contracts for research. But they mostly pay for additional activities. They don't actually pay for educating the undergraduates or the master's students. Right? They pay for an additional project, doing research on an important issue. Very key work, right? but not primarily the core budget. Occasionally they do. We get some money from philanthropy, a tiny amount by comparison to many competitors, especially American competitors, but not only. The new economic school in Moscow just completed a $300 million endowment fundraising campaign. Okay. Not the higher school, I'm sorry, Richard. Not the one we're partnered with, a different one. <laughs> but, right, we're used to thinking, okay, we know Harvard and Yale and Stanford and so forth, but this issue of philanthropic funding really tracks inequality and the existence of people with the money to be philanthropic with, right? The bottom line is that. And as we have a variety of others around the world who are able to make major donations, then this happens. Oxford and Cambridge have had their billion, dollar, billion pound campaigns, right? When the LSE set out in its centennial campaign to raise 100 million pounds, right, it was a pioneer in Britain. It was one of the first really big university campaigns of this kind. It took longer to achieve it than the original plan suggested. But Bristol just passed us. And Imperial just declared that it was having a billion-pound campaign. We are no longer in the vanguard of this. We're playing catch-up. And that changes the competition, changes the costs of professors, as does housing in London. Right? If you want to hire people today, right, Clare Market is no longer a slum. To live anywhere near the LSE right, is very expensive. Right? So the cost of faculty changes, student housing changes, all of this. Philanthropy pays a big role. But what pays the majority of the costs? Fees charged to students right now. And I think this is both unsustainable, or let me put that differently. I actually don't think it's unsustainable. I think we could charge students more and charge them high fees as long as we wanted to. If we didn't care about two things, if we didn't care about getting the best students and if we didn't care about the morality of it. Right? But if we do care about quality and morality, then we cannot finance the LSE indefinitely, primarily on student fees. And so we have to become better at philanthropy. Right? Government, we want it, we're happy to get it. The government pays about 18% of the LSE budget now, 1-8, 18%. So we are not primarily funded by the government. We have a kind of historical debt to it. The government helped to buy buildings and things in earlier periods. We still owe something to the British taxpayers in this. But in terms of the current budget, it's a pretty small percentage. But I think there's a limit to what we can legitimately expect students to pay. And it's not just because 9,000 is too high a number or something. It's because we are looking at costs that are going up. Right? And we need to recognize that not all of those costs are immediately going into undergraduate teaching or other kinds of teaching. They support research. They support buildings. They support recruitment of our faculty. They support public engagement 
our wonderful lecture series, I think probably most of you have been to fantastic events in this room, which don't happen with no cost, but for which we don't charge, right? There are a variety of things that create expenses. So we need to work on this. Now, I actually think we're going to solve this problem. But we're only going to solve this problem because we need to succeed in generating new kinds of income, mainly from philanthropy. Right? Otherwise, too much of the burden falls on students, and too many of the students have other options. A survey was done last year, actually about 18 months ago, asking British students who chose to study in the United States why they studied in the United States. The number one reason, actually both of the top two reasons are interesting. I'll tell you the second first. It's not quite as shocking. The second reason is a desire to do an interdisciplinary degree rather than a single honors degree. Right? So the second highest reason, right? to be able to do economics and French, right? or sociology and computer science, or other kinds of combinations that are very hard to do in the UK. But the number one reason, the number one reason UK students went to study in the United States was because it was cheaper. Now, you've heard about the tuition at $40,000, $50,000 per student. That's not what's cheaper. What's cheaper is scholarships. British students going to Yale get a bill, right, which is for about 42000 plus the cost of room and board, minus scholarships. Right? More than half the students going to Yale get scholarships many of them full scholarships, many of them paying for their room and board as well. So many of the British students who are choosing other schools, right, not Oxford and Cambridge, right, not the LSE, are actually supported by philanthropy, supported by alumni who said, I'm going to give somebody else the kind of opportunity I had, sometimes supported by corporations, supported by people who are trying to buy prestige by associating themselves with universities. But they're supported by philanthropic gifts and that defrays some of the cost. So for us, this is an issue that bears on how well we're going to serve our mission, our mission of getting really good knowledge and sharing it, because our mission wasn't to store up the best knowledge and hide it. Our mission was to create and improve knowledge and share it. So we need to work on how we're going to do that, and we need to work on it in England and indeed globally. Because the LSE at this point is committed to London, to England, to Britain. It's committed to Europe. It's, I gather there's going to be a vote about this, but I expect the LSE to still be committed. And it's going to be committed globally. Right? We want to make a difference at all these different scales. Right? And we do a pretty good job. But we have mostly students from the southeast among our English students not so many from the rest of the country. Our international students, we're very proud of saying how global we are, but by one measure of how global we are, we peaked 20 years ago. How many different countries the students came from. The LSE is remarkably global among students whose families can afford it. We don't have as large an African student population, as large a Latin American student population as just reflecting the globe would suggest. Right? We have disproportionate students who can pay from it. And people coming right, from countries where there are also less well-off students who can't afford it. So if we are going to have not only wealthy, but less wealthy Indian students 
not only wealthy, but less wealthy Chinese students, we need to think about how this is going to work and how we're going to support it. And it's not only a matter of justice and morality and helping those students, which it is a matter of, right? it's also a matter of the LSE experience, which is about having different kinds of students from all over interacting with each other, changing the character of seminars. Now, we are enthusiastic about this mission. I hope you're enthusiastic about pursuing it because it's not going to be easy to achieve it, but we will be able to achieve it, I think. But it's going to take really hard work and it's going to take asking ourselves hard questions. We're in the middle of a strategic review that we launched in order to be able first to be clear about what we were trying to accomplish and then be able to ask of all the different things we do, is this the best way to accomplish our goals? We have 22 departments at the LSE. The founding, the LSE had no departments. It had no departments until the 1960s. The department is a relatively modern invention to organize academic work at the LSE. Right? Why 22? The founders thought there were seven social science fields. We've added a lot. Right? Now, our departments are good. This is not a complaint about any one of those departments, but it's a question. If we're going to try to meet our objectives, if we're going to make a difference, if we're going to make the world better, if we're going to do it by sharing knowledge widely, what's the right mix of departments and research centers? What should we invest in? What faculty do we need? What programs do we need to make this work? So we have a strategic review that is asking these questions. Ask them of you, and you're about to get another question in your email sort of asking you, they will get a little more specific. The first one was a success. I appreciate 181 of the alumni answered, so this is great. We got answers from students. We got answers from faculty. Right? We got really good answers about the importance of the new library or the importance of argument and debate in class or the importance of rights bar, which a number of people said was the single most memorable and important thing about the LSE. Um, right? So, we got enthusiastic alumni connection, remembering what was important, and we take seriously, we are not going to get rid of Rights Bar, but we also right, take seriously various things about what mattered. Right? It mattered to them that they had a globally diverse set of other students in their classes. Although, interestingly, a number of international people have also reported it mattered to them that they were English people. Right? And one of the actions we've taken is actually some balancing to slightly increase the number of places we offer to English undergraduates. The LSE over the years has moved in the direction of more postgraduate education and more international education. Both of those are good. But we asked ourselves in new circumstances, might it not also be good to have more opportunity for English undergraduates? Isn't part of the mission of sharing what we do a mission in England? And so we're increasing over the next three years by 1,000 places the number of places for English undergraduates. I'm not saying whether we, you know, we may increase for others, we may do more, but that's our first step. It's not a transformative increase, but it's not nothing either. And it's significant, and we're trying to target some of this work to new audiences. So in all of this, the LSE works in a context where we don't ignore rankings. We want to be at the top. We want the best. We aren't saying, well, it used to be that we wanted to have Lionel Robbins, but now we want Joe Schmo. No, we want the new Lionel Robbins, right? We want the best faculty. We know that that's expensive. We work on that. But then we want to deliver innovative research, not conventional research. And we want to deliver innovative and good teaching. 
Now, we're really highly ranked for our research. Right? Literally, the last time went out, we ranked ahead of Oxford, just behind Cambridge, on the average quality. That's really good. Right? We want to be as highly ranked globally as in the UK, but we're very impressed by that ranking. They also did a ranking of teaching. We didn't rank second in the UK, or 10th, or 20th, right? But we should, right? It is not an acceptable thing for the LSE not to take teaching as seriously as it takes research, right? Now, that doesn't mean we are going to pander to mere mass popularity, because the teaching that the LSE does is challenging, serious teaching, not hard questions and issues. But it means we'd better be figuring out how to do it better. So we're making a priority of strengthening the teaching programs at the LSE at every level. And there are sort of simple things we do, like, oh, let's try to have more small classes. But it's more than just that. Right? It's about incentives and reward systems. It's about the physical plant. You know, surprise, surprise, people like classes in this room better than classes in less attractive rooms, right? But it's about the professors and what they're committed to or not, and all the other faculty and teachers. So we're working to improve the teaching, and we're doing some really good things, and we have an outstanding center for teaching and learning, and we now have programs to help faculty members who are good researchers learn how to be good teachers, because good teachers are not just born, they actually try. It takes some effort, and you have to know what effort. It's something you learn, like other things. So we're working on improving the teaching, and it's not easy. But again, I think we will do it. And it's not easy because people are really busy. They know that there's a, the REF, the Research Excellence Framework, and a big evaluation coming, and they're going to be judged, and their salary is going to be affected by publications. And so they say, well, how can I afford to be doing all of this extra time? I got very frustrated early in my time at the LSE when I heard that a department had um, determined that 10 minutes per student was too much time for feedback. All right? It's outrageous. Right? We can't tolerate that. But we have to recognize that that comes from them having lots of different pressures on their time. So when I said you can't do that, right? it also means we have to figure out what is needed. Is it that they don't have enough faculty for the students? What is it that's going on? Right? And we work on that. So the strategic review is trying to take account of this, that we cannot fulfill our mission by research alone. We absolutely have to be a great research institution. and we have to be a great teaching institution. We have to do well. And we have to consider new possibilities, like those online programs that we're working on, that are at the heart of all of this. The LSE not only teaches and does research, right? it's engaged publicly in remarkable ways. And I came from New York and New York University, and before that I taught at Columbia, and they have public programs, and New York is also a big city. And I ran an institute of public knowledge at NYU that had remarkable large programs, nothing like the LSE. Our public speakers program is second to none. It's amazing. Heads of state, UN leaders, top academics, leading business figures during term, every night of the week, often two or three, and a hard decision. Right? Terrific program. Right? So we're doing something great there. But we need to go beyond just the lectures, and we do, engaging policy, working in other ways, working in other media. Right? That's part of what the LSE is also about. And in fact, the teaching is part of that, because teaching is part of our public mission. 
most of us professors, most of us teachers at the LSE, will reach more people and have more of an impact through our teaching than through those times when we get to talk to the minister, through those times when we get to go on television. Right? The teaching is the public mission of sharing knowledge. But we also share knowledge when we work with professional groups, lawyers and continuing education and advanced programs, when we work with various government ministries, when we run programs for non-traditional students in executive education or other fields. Right? We have a lot of opportunities, and London's a brilliant place to have those opportunities. And that's part of what made the LSE special. I want to wind up with just another few comments, things that made the LSE special. Now, I'm going to guess when you were a student, those of you who are not teetotalers, that some of those classroom arguments spilled over into the local pubs. You were at the George IV, not just having a beer, continuing the discussion. Right? It's great to, you know, the, actually, the elevators are a problem at the LSE. They're not one of our real strong suits technologically. But they are pretty impressive, because every time you stand around waiting for the elevator in the old building, you hear students having discussions. Did you agree with what he said about that? I don't know. Actually, I saw it completely differently. Here's my perspective on it. You hear serious intellectual conversations the minute they spill out of class. Right? And those also spill out into the pubs or into other places. And those very discussions are part of what the LSE is about. It's about arguments. Right? It's about creative challenge and arguments. It matters, though, that we've grown larger, and we think, need to think institutionally about spaces where these arguments flourish, about ways in which students can continue to do that. When we had 3,000 students, some of this could work differently. Students from anthropology could meet economic students, and both of them could meet geographers, accidentally, easily. Right? Now it's easier for students to stay all in their own group, whether it's a national group or a departmental group. The LSE is not just a bunch of disciplinists. It's not just economists and finance. It's the mixing of economists and finance and anthropology and geography and international development and social policy and all these different programs. So we need to make sure we facilitate that mixing. The LSE is some of the great people whose ideas galvanize people. Right? When figures like Popper, I mentioned a moment ago, or to take you know, from other sides, from Beveridge, when Robbins, when Michael Oakeshott, the great conservative thinker, spoke, they attracted students outside their own departments. Students who were not registered in a class or something, students who wanted to know what some of the leading ideas of their days were, wanted to see it face to face, and had the chance at the LSE. We've developed LSE 100, a new teaching innovation, to give that opportunity to people and nudge them a little bit towards it in case they're forgetting to take advantage of it, where leading LSE faculty members right, come and talk about the different ways you see issues. Because every major problem, urbanization or healthcare, right, climate change, finance, every one of them in the real world spills out across disciplines. None of them is contained by one academic discipline. They all can be seen from different angles. Some of the best writing on finance recently has come from Gillian Tett, a social anthropologist writing for the Financial Times, writing a book like Fool's Gold, looking anthropologically at how the world of derivatives could get out of control the way that it did in the financial crisis. So we bring her 
right? And she's talked to the students. And we try to see how do you put together that perspective with more conventional finance or economics, whatever. So we have an innovative teaching program run by a great professor. A professor is a terrific teacher, Jonathan Leap, who animates and leads this program. And other professors, the top professors in the school, coming in, and all the students take it. And 10% of them grumble. But they all take it. And they learn something beyond, something a little more challenging than just what was in their field. But our research does that, too. We bring people together from different fields. So part of what the LSE does is connect different lines of vision, different lines of understanding to see the big problems. So we are working to say, well, what are those five or six or seven big problems today that we're going to bring people together around? And we're pretty clear. We have some of those that we're clear of. We have, you don't think of the LSE as a health sciences university. We don't have a medical school, but we have a growing health program, which is bringing together economists, social policy analysts, sociologists, and others to look at health issues in Britain and around the world, to look at the process of innovation, to look at the way the public is changed by these issues. We have lots of other examples. I won't go on and on about it. But what I want to stress is that the LSE did distinctive things always in its traditional mission that we're going to do in new ways now sometimes. So those big thinkers are in big lecture rooms, but they're also on television and they're also increasingly online. Right. The student interaction is something we need to work on because we became efficient sometimes by having too many big lectures and not enough small interactive seminars, not enough chances for projects and engagement and active learning. Shift that. It's the same LSE mission. It's renewing our commitment to the core classic LSE mission in a new era with some new problems. Right? Finance was not the same concern to the founders that it has to be to anyone who lives in today's world. Right? Some new problems, but also the same approach to a real-world understanding informed by the best possible scholarship and understanding the way in which the world works from different vantage points. Now I need some notes. So I want to tell you about some good things that have been happening and make sure I don't forget some key ones. So we're challenged. Right? We're going to succeed. Well, what are people out doing? This year we won not one but two major um, new ESRC-funded centers on systemic risk on macroeconomics. Large-scale, 10 million pound projects. Creative, envelope-stretching. And also bringing people together, connecting. So the Center for Systemic Risk connects to people in the city and to corporations that have huge amounts of data that can be analyzed in completely different ways because we also connect to people with completely different kinds of computer technology to analyze big data sets. So innovation, connection, success and competition, and it involves students in the research. It's not just research a faculty off somewhere. Students get involved in this project, too. The International Growth Center, the largest concentration in development economics worth in the country, is the city's program, which is doing remarkable urban agendas and has just received substantial new funding to continue this. Right? Where I got to have the interesting experience of sitting on the stage with Boris Johnson and David Cameron, and listening to each of them make comments about the other when the other was speaking. <laughs> you know, 
Boris doesn't know they can't vote for him, does he? That kind of thing. Right? Um, the Cities Program, which staged just a remarkable event in the global cities that would attract the Prime Minister and the Mayor to make it a place to showcase their vision. Um, the teaching programs of the LSC, we have a teaching task force doing new work, we have new projects. We're building some of those interdisciplinary degrees. We're not just saying, oh, students want flexibility, we don't do that. We're figuring out how to deliver it, expanding the home EU numbers, as I said, working on public engagement in a variety of ways. In a few weeks, we'll be announcing the creation of a new institute headed by Connor Geerty, whom some of you will know from law, focused on public engagement, right? and bringing together a variety of people from other parts of the school. Tony Travers is a leading professor who works on urban issues, but also very much on policy advice and connections to the British government. Charlie Beckett, a journalist who's turned into a leading communications researcher and specialist in the media communications problem project. Sonia Livingston, a social psychologist who works on um, adolescents and children, a range of different leading professors to be able to engage and animate and shape public discussion. So things are turning. They're working. These are all people, by the way, who are already at the LSE. I didn't just go find these people. These are great LSE professors. My job and our job to some extent is to improve the platform on which they work, to help them have more impact, to do that change of the world. And our students, that Entrepreneurs Club, so we said, right, we've got to connect them to entrepreneurs. And some of you, perhaps, should be volunteering. But we have begun systematically trying to build connections for them to be able to reach a variety of people in London and internationally in different sorts of fields and build these kind of connections. So we do need philanthropic support. We need connections to different kinds of partners, government, corporate, social movement. We need applications from wonderful students. We need to be able to reach them from all over in whatever background. But we have an amazing faculty. We have an amazing spirit and an amazing determination to pursue these goals. So I'm really impressed. I don't mean there are never arguments. There are always arguments, which is kind of what's cool about the LSE. Right? But there's also an underlying commitment to this school that really impresses me from people who work here, from current and former students. And it's a commitment not just to be at the top of the league table, but to make a difference, as I started out saying. A commitment to make the world better, a commitment to understand things better, to know the causes of things, as the slogan goes, right? to think hard, argue hard, try hard to grasp what's really going on and then to use that knowledge to make the world a better place. So the state of the LSE is very good and getting better and better and better. Thank you.
to thank Craig for his in this age of austerity and, uh, and, and downbeat news and always negative uh, outturns, some uplifting words about the state of the school and a very, very impassioned uh, update on some of the great things that we, we love about the institution. Um, we've got about 20 minutes for, for Q&A. Um, can I ask everyone to wait till they've got a microphone because we are being recorded for a podcast so international alumni are able to hear what we're asking to, to remind us that we have an international uh, remit here. Um, so we've got, can I have the, the man in the yellow shirt there, uh, a lady down the front here, um, and uh, the chap with the uh, blue shirt. Do we do rounds of three? Uh, Norman Barney, it's hard to believe it's over half a century since I was a student here. It's really scary. Um, could I take uh, Professor Calhoun up on, on two points? Firstly, in relation to the intention to recruit more students from England. Well, well UK, yeah. You, you do mean the UK. That's rather important these days. Actually, you know, we have to say, and I, I'm sure I didn't say it and said it wrong. I'm trying to remember what we are required to say is home EU, and that's a significant issue. Okay, right, thank you. Uh, the second one, a more general question, I suppose it has to do with interdisciplinarity that you've promoted. I, I noticed in your previous work at the Social Science Research Council in the USA, there's been a big research program on the topic of prayer. Could you tell us something you've learned about it, and will it be helpful in your role and for the LSE itself? I do think prayer might be helpful in my role, and I should try it more, I imagine. Um, I haven't learned a lot yet because that started on my way out, but let me tell you a couple of thoughts about that project, which is sort of illustrative of something. The projects from the Templeton Foundation, which is our funded men organizing research on this and interested in science and religion questions, and they ran projects for several years um, which did um, neural psychology and brain scans and tried to see if people's brains changed when they were praying and which looked in hospitals to see whether prayer helped people with survival rates after operations and various things. But they didn't do one thing. So this project grew out of um, a, a younger colleague, Jonathan Antwerpen, Van Antwerpen and I, saying to some people from the Templeton Foundation, did you ever think of asking what prayer means to people? What about approaching it as a kind of cultural and a social question? And psychological in a different sense, how does it fit into their lives? When do they pray? What do they think they get out of it? Not just trying the sort of hard science tracking of did it have an effect, but asking what it means and asking in different religions. Does it mean the same thing? We use the same word. Does it mean the same thing to Muslims and Christians and Jews and so forth? Right? How does this work? So this is a project that looks at the social and cultural organization and meanings of prayer and what it matters, uh, what it means to people in different places and under different circumstances. It's not a project that advocates for prayer or that argues against it, um, that has any particular stance on the questions of secularism and religion, except to try to understand how a widespread activity fits into people's lives and who engages and who doesn't and when and how. So that's what the project is. It's a social science project on prayer and how it is socially organized and what matters. Um, and it's part of a, a larger movement of projects that try to assess the ways in which people uh, organize their lives that bring them happiness, satisfaction, motivation, right? a range of goods, whether or not 
anyone can show that they bring them salvation or um, other less measurable to us goods in that. So that's what's up with the project on prayer. It was controversial when we set it up. A variety of people said, if you deal with religion, you inevitably get drawn into subjective, religion-based interpretations, and you can't be social scientists anymore. Part of what I thought about that, and others in our board of trustees and all who sort of weighed it, was you also can't understand the world if you aren't willing to look at the world and see that there are a lot of religious people, a lot of people who pray, a lot of the issues in the world shaped by religious perspectives. So a social science that refused to look at a very large part of what was going on in the world would be missing something, right? would not be understanding the causes of things, would not be doing the work that it needs to do. Now, I don't know the results of what they've learned. This is in its first year of operation, and I left to come to the LSE, um, where I practice but don't study prayer. Um, thank you. Oh. Uh, I'm, I'm, is this on? I guess it is. I'm, I'm Professor Ruth Taplin, and I've uh, been a, um, an advocate and a proponent of interdisciplinary economics since I've done my doctorate here a long time ago and through journals. And I'm very delighted to know that you're bringing the interdisciplinary approach here. Um, can you just expand a bit more on what kind of areas of interdisciplinarity you would like to see more developed at LSE? Because I, I really sure. feel it's extremely important. Thank Thanks you. for the question. I do want to say right away, I didn't bring it here because the LSE has believed in interdisciplinary for a long time, but I'm trying to encourage it and help this thrive. It's not that I invented it or that the LSE needed me to show up to learn the word. But the growth of the LSE had led departments to become the main unit of organization. Um, and so they were strong, and they want, we want them to be strong and good, but they weren't counterbalanced by as many of those kinds of connections. And I'll give a sketch. I think um, my view of being the director is that it's not my opinion which issue. It's my job to help the faculty have the discussion to figure out which are the issues we should be dealing with, not tell them, in a sense. But I think there are some clear examples. So I mentioned cities. The LSE has four different programs that do some version of urban studies um, separately in their different departments. But I think actually we'll get a better handle on what's happening in a world where, where urban residents are now the majority of the population, where cities are major drivers of economic development. You know, we always give economic statistics as national statistics. Here's England, here's France, whatever. But in a very large proportion, it's urban phenomena that are driving this and some of the tensions between urban and rural. London and the rest of Britain, it's a very different situation. So bringing together people who do economic analysis, geographic analysis, sociological analysis and fieldwork, people even who do design. You may be surprised to know that the LSE has, as one of its faculty members, Ricky Burdett, who was the chief architectural advisor to the Olympics, one of the people who did a key role in making the London Olympics not only a sporting success, but an urbanistic success in many ways, reshaping parts of London, sometimes controversially. Their debate, was it worth moving people out of some of those places in East London in order to rebuild in better ways? But this is a question that is faced in cities around the world. It's London as well as Mumbai that have a question of how do you balance these out? So cities, I'm bringing a variety of different people together. Um, I think another area where you can see that happening at the LSE is around environment and climate change. We have the Grantham Institute for Climate Change looking at that particular issue. 
but also people looking at other kinds of issues from pollution, environmental degradation. What's going on in Beijing? Have any of you seen photographs of Beijing in the last couple of days? The thick smog. Remind anyone, is anyone old enough to remember London in the 19, uh, early 1950s, right? I mean, remarkably reminiscent and with remarkably similar causal patterns, back to understand the causal things, to the smogs of the early post-war era. Um, so that we have something devastating to health, really problematic, have dealt with it some places, not others, and that kind of environmental issue, but it extends to resources. Right? So something like water resources, one of the most basic issues for the future of the world, or at least of humanity in the world, is potential scarcities and unequal distributions of access to water. Um, water for a variety of purposes, but especially clean water for drinking, cooking with, but of course, water matters and gets used for cooling a variety of you know, nuclear reactors, energy resources, industrial facilities. It gets used in a lot of different ways. It becomes an issue that's a conflict between countries. Whole lakes dry up. Um, so environmental issues in thought in a large way become another of those areas because I think there are no environmental solutions that will be produced by technologists alone, right? by people doing atmospheric sciences alone. They will be the obstacles to dealing with the environment. They're very big environmental issues. The obstacles are social and economic obstacles to being able to have green cities. They're not just, it's not just inventions and technology, right? How do we pay for it? Who makes the choices? Will people decide to use it or will they make an end run around the policy, right? These are the kinds of, of questions. My predecessor, Tony Giddens, who many of you will have known, has made this one of his major foci in the House of Lords and writing a book about it and so forth, and it is part of, of this. And we recognize then, just to take these two, and I'm going to stop after this, oh, there's an interesting relationship and tension between thinking about the environment and thinking about cities, right? Thinking about all the lights burning all night that make urban life what we think it is and the energy challenges, right? Thinking about the transportation infrastructures that links up these cities. When we say things like cities are more linked to other cities than they are to the countryside around them. Right? I'm going to bet lots of you, even in a country like Britain, actually like England, I really mean England this time, I'm not saying it wrong, um, like England, which loves the countryside, which has always had close relations to the countryside, lots of people travel city to city without going to the countryside, haven't been in the surrounding countryside in ages, though they've traveled. They've been to Paris more than they've been out and around, right? We've created an extremely energy-intensive set of habits around our urban way of life, so we need to put these two things together. So it's this kind of thing I'm talking about, and it builds on strengths the LSE already have. This isn't because I realized something that nobody else had thought of. It's because we often have these strengths, but we haven't pulled together as much to get the full benefit out of the kinds of intellectual work we're doing. And the chap over here. Sorry. And can I have a lady to have some gender balance as well? Ah, then there's gender oh, as an interdisciplinary question. Well, I'll, I'll have two, <laughs> two ladies after this. Uh, yeah, sorry, thanks. Um, my name's Varun. I, I came here a couple of years ago. I'm over here. Yeah, so. ah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, my name is I came here a couple of years ago, and um, after a couple of years in the world of work, I'm trying to start up my own thing now. And I know that there are two things here at the LSE that would be really useful for me, which is people and expertise. Um, and I guess my question is, what's the best way currently to tap into those, and what's being done to make that easier for people like me, as an example? I mean, um, here's how you reach me. I'd be happy to help. <laughs> 
And the, so there are a couple things. The, we have, um, through the um, various student organizations, a variety of ways to connect up with students and find out what expertise you need and what aspects. And with staff who work with students. So the LSC Careers Office, great way to connect to expertise in the form of new people who are out looking for jobs. In the form of expertise of the faculty and so forth, LSE experts on their websites begins one way that you can sort it. We're just in the middle of trying to improve and upgrade that, but you can go on our website, LSE experts, mm -hmm. and it gives you basic descriptions of the expertise of all the different professors and lecturers and so forth in the school. The, um, depending on the, the field in which you're working in, the research institutes are great ways to go. Right? So if you're interested in health and you want to go to LSE health, if you're interested in cities you want to go to LSE cities, but it depends on the topic um, that you're on about. But there is an active desire to try to make these connections outside. So, so here's my card. If it doesn't work, <laughs> let me know, and I'll make it work. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I was a student here from 47 to 51, um, and thank you for the inspiring and deeply encouraging talk. I just want to ask something about the students. Um, I, I used to work a lot and do a lot of business in the Soviet Union. When they collapsed, we decided to sponsor 30 students in this country. Um, to, and very quickly, they came to the top here. They, they mm -hmm. absolutely drifted to the top. I understand a lot of your foreign students and Chinese students do the same. Um, and they came to me afterwards when we reviewed every week how they were getting on. They said, we don't have enough work to do. They have a learning ethic and a discipline about, about, about learning that we seem to have lost. And I'm not quite sure whether that's a problem with your students and how you can tackle that. The Russians also show, with their continual supply of mu great musicians, how their traditional methods are still working. Sure. What are you doing about that? So I agree with you completely. And that's the very fact of tradition matters. One reason I started with our traditions. I think people are shaped, motivated, and influenced by their traditions, not just by instrumental rational calculations. Nobody becomes a great musician by saying, oh yes, I'm going to invest 10,000 hours of practice and it's going to have this. It has to have some passion to it if they're going to become a great musician. And, and tradition shapes that for many of us. What we've learned from our parents, not just from our schools. What we absorb culturally. So I think there's partial truth to these largely national um, sort of um, accounts that many of the students coming from other places came with different study habits. Only partial, though, because I think it's partly who's coming from those places. It's not some randomly picked average from all those countries. It's people who've been selected and selected in ways that partly maximize those qualities. And, um, and I think that part of what we see at the other end is the impact of what I referred to earlier in the increase the proportion of the population going to the university and the extent to which it becomes normal so that students go to university because they graduated from secondary school. Well, I did A-levels. I might as well go to university. My parents think I will. Not out of a motivation, necessarily. And so there's, there's a little bit of failure of that. And if we compared it to earlier generations sometimes of English students as well, not loud, two generations ago, the LSE had many people who were first-generation university students in their families, right? Not one or two, many. And, and there were, they had challenges that came from not coming from faculties with lots of cultural capital or something like that, but they also had motivation that came from a real determination, a sense of why they were going to university and wanting to get something out of it. 
And I think we need to figure out how to achieve that motivation, not just we, the LSE, but socially. We, Britain, we, the West, need to figure that out, or we aren't going to thrive um, the way that we have it sometimes in the past thrived. It's worth remembering that some of these ideas about motivational work discipline come from the West. It was, after all, Max Weber writing The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, talking about work discipline, motivation, and this, thinking about Western Europeans, right? So we have to ask, how is it that if, if there is loss of some of that motivation, what nurtured it? I think it's a complicated pattern that I wouldn't pretend to be able to explain. You asked also, though, about our students. Our students are pretty hardworking. Um, I actually am very impressed with the LSE students in that way. So I don't see a big failure of motivation. Some work harder than others, but first off, again, we're selecting students who've already demonstrated um, both natural ability and willingness to work, or they wouldn't have gotten in given the admissions requirements. So it's hard to generalize by that. It is certainly true that students from different places have somewhat different behaviors in this. I don't disagree with that. Um, but I haven't noticed any big group of slackers, they all see. So I came you know, from New York University, which is an excellent university, which has a lot of good students. And um, I, I'm not going to try to put a percentage to it. But there were. There were just a lot more students whose parents had said go to college, and so they were there, but they were mostly partying. Right? Um, it's hard to get into New York University. It costs three times as much as the LSE. Um, but there was a different attitude about this. Now, I, I don't want to go too far with this, because I don't want to, I would tell you another bit of, of survey information and tell you I don't approve of it. A recent survey was done of students in all of the London universities, and the LSE students scored lowest on kissing. And I was very disappointed by this. And so I don't want to be heard to be advocating all work and no play. Um, right? I do think we have a very work-oriented student body, though. I'll leave it there. Um, I, we've got time. I've been indicated we've got time for one more last question, because I did ask a lot of men. Can I have a lady? Um, one in the middle over there, if that's okay. I'm probably taking too long answering. I apologize. Thank you very much. I'm actually a former LSE scholar, and I'm now an entrepreneur, so no surprise, my question will be about money. So what I want to know is when will be the uh, one billion campaign starting at the LSE for fundraising, and how can we all help? You can all help in multiple ways. The when question is more complicated. So we are figuring out right now um, whether we have the right organizational structure to support this. I think probably we will need to augment this, because a campaign takes uh, people, right? It takes a staff to work on it. And it takes better connections than we have between people working in our Office of Development alumni relations and people doing communications and so forth. So we need to get our organizational house in order. I'm going to guess that will take us into the summer. And by next fall, we will be ready to seriously scale up. So we're already doing development work. And I'm very grateful to those of you who have given to the annual campaign, which brought in more than a million pounds last year, and all this, this is really good. But in terms of really having the transformative work that will change things, I think this will start, and you'll gradually get ready for it during the spring, but it will start next fall. And what you can do to help includes, of course, sending money, 
making pledges, but it includes getting involved and helping us connect and network and bring people together, bring alumni together, help to identify the things people want to know about the LSE so that we can bring together groups, bring them to the LSE um, of alumni and of other friends of the LSE around specific issues. Would they like to work on those issues of climate change and environment and resources that I talked about, or are they moved by the issues of finance and financial regulation? We have some people who've done wonderful things. Paul Woolley, a, um, a private investor working largely in financial investment, who endowed a center for the study of capital market dysfunctions and comes to it and works in it and helps to write some of the academic papers together with the professors he's supporting. We, have, we want alumni to be involved in this and donors to be thinking, what do they want out of the university? So in this strategic review that we're doing, there will be part of it focused on getting ready for this and trying to ask those questions so you can help us understand better what you want and others want. You can help us connect and have programs. You can eventually host a reception at your home. So some people will be able from their own wealth to do things. Some people will have connections at firms that can do things financially. Other people will be able to help to host and to network and to make the campaign work in that sense. And it will be global. It will be here in London, but it will also be our alumni. And we have lots of alumni in Hong Kong or in New York or in other places. Um, but the, the idea, to be just very general about it, is that it's a participatory project. Because it's not just about, you know, send a bunch of people a letter saying, please send us money, and it pours in. It is partly reconnecting alumni to the school. And I think we haven't always been as good as we're going to need to be at building those connections, at making people remember it's their school, that they care about what happens here, but also that the school can serve their philanthropic objectives. That if the issue you're worried about is health, or the issue you're worried about is African economic development, or the issue you're worried about is the EU and its future, right? the great issue that my predecessor, Ralph Dahrendorf, both Right, was a great advocate for that future and warned us decades ago when he was here at the LSE, we don't have the institutional setup to make European integration work. I mean, you know, said Darnorf, I'm in favor of European integration and we have to look critically at the institutions. Well, if you care about Europe then, the LSE is a place where you can leverage an investment in better understanding and action on Europe as on African economic development, as on India, as on environment, as on cities, or other issues that people bring up. So part of this is when you say, what should we be focused on? Do you want to help those student entrepreneurs? Or do you want to advance health innovation? You, there are different options in which resources can be steered to students, to projects that can make a difference. And that's the opportunity the LSE offers. It's a kind of leverage investment where you get all that the LSE already is harnessed to what it is you care about and are supporting. Can I assure you that wasn't a planted question to launch the £1 billion campaign today? There will be no buckets at the door, but what there will be is slightly warmer white wine outside. So I'd invite everyone to come join. Uh, firstly, so firstly, thank Craig for some fantastic and uplifting words. Thank you.